Welcome to the Post Up Pod. Coach Stefan Grasker joins us for this week's edition of the Post Up Pod. Coach has served as the associate head coach from 2018 to 2021 for the Vienna Timberwolves in the Austrian BSL. He's also currently serving as an assistant coach for the Austrian national team. In this podcast, we discuss building and implementing a defensive philosophy, defensive game planning and in-game adjustments, ball screen defense, and the next defensive rotation system. This is a great episode. Coach Grassiger does a great job of explaining his defensive philosophy, and we get into the weeds a little bit. Hope you enjoy. Now, on to Coach. Sure. Yeah, uh, my name is Stefan Grassiger. Um, I'm from Austria, uh, currently living in, in Vienna, Austria. Um, been in basketball for 17 years now. Been coaching basketball for 14 years or 13 years, actually, because I took a, a gap year uh, three years ago. Um, started coaching at 16 because I, I, I yeah, pretty much noticed that I'm not good enough, not talented enough to, to be a pro, but I did want to do something with basketball professionally. So I had a really early start in coaching. Um, had, had a couple of important mentors who I always want to mention because they are the main reason that, that I'm here today. Um, and the names are Raoul Corner, who's the head coach of Medi Bayreuth and the current uh, Austrian national team head coach, and Martin Schiller, one of my best mates actually, maybe you've seen this, is the new, newly appointed head coach of Schalgeris Kaunas. Mm. Um, and so how do I know these two people? Um, when, when I was 16, uh, Raoul Corner was the head coach of, of my local, local team in Austria, uh, Wells. Um, and Martin was the youth coordinator and assistant coach, and he was the guy who yeah, asked me if I wanted to be his assistant and become a coach. And like fr- from that moment on, my career started. And yeah, eventually I, um, I ended up with the, the best youth program in all of Austria with the, the NFDC Timberwolves. Been a youth coach there for a couple of seasons, uh, then got promoted to be the assistant coach of the first team. Um, took a year uh, off from that program to be an assistant coach in the first league. And while I was away, they managed to get promoted to the to the first league, and 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 then I came home, I should say. And yeah, um, and in addition to that, since 2016, I work as an assistant coach for the uh, senior men's national team. First under Coach Kastutis Kumsura, who was with Olympiacos, and as I said, now with uh, with Raul Corner. Yeah, and that's where I am working as an assistant coach um, for. Uh, at the club level and at the national team level and also doing some youth stuff. So, Yeah, and that's, that's one reason I know that I'm personally excited to, to have this conversation with you because you've worked with you know, some high-level youth programs as well as some, some pros, and so you, you have a, a varied experience. And I think you, know, you, you have a unique perspective. Um, you know, uh, so when we're talking about building and, you know, building and developing your own personal philosophy or as an assistant, you know, in, in encouraging the growth of your coach's philosophy, what are, what are some of the considerations, the, the primary considerations um, in the off season, you know, when you're looking at the, the mm-hmm. next season? Uh, for me, it was like the, the season when I came back from that gap year, that was, I want to say that gap year was critical because it helped me, or it gave me time to really establish a philosophy for me. Because to be perfectly honest with you, as an assistant coach, you know, you prepare games, you do, I don't know, do the scouts, do individual work, and then, okay, 
my thinking process, okay, we can hedge here or we can drop there in a pick and roll. But, you know, for, I never really thought about having an overarching, uh, encompassing philosophy before that. And for me, the most important thing was, was clarity and, and having a philosophy or a crafting philosophy that complements or where each parts complement each other. Um, I'll, I'll go into detail a little bit later. So to your question, I think that was the most important part for me, understanding that uh, effens- uh, uh, especially defensively, clarity is the most important thing, I'd argue. So, mm-hmm. so in terms of you know, vocabulary, every, every coach right. speaking the same language, your right. players right. being able to you know, know exactly yeah. what this means. Yeah, and, and being, being consistent in, in every situation, so like not, not asking um, players things that are not coherent with the overall uh, philosophy, but also accounting for situations where, um, where different parts of your philosophy might be difficult to achieve. For example, if we dive into to more um, details, uh, detailed stuff, off of a flare screen, if the big um, has to drop to protect the basket, and after the flare screen, there's a pick and roll immediately after, I cannot ask that big to hedge out now because the gap is too big now. Uh, but these are the things that um, I understood after crafting a philosophy that's tailored for myself. So that this, what I'm talking about is how I view defense. Obviously, when you work with different coaches, you have to adapt um, as an assistant coach. Um, and I think it's great that you have to adapt because you learn a lot of things. Um, but as I said, like having the time to think these things through, because back in the day, I was like, oh, aren't you, aren't you hedging out there? We say you hedge. But then the big looks at me is like, Dude, I can't because I'm like <laughs> right. years away, right? So, um, so clarity and coherence would be the most important things to 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 make a short answer long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about ball screens, and I've heard coaches, you know, say that that when they're they're crafting their own personal philosophy or for their roster when they're looking at what they would like to do. Uh, I've heard a lot of coaches say that that's really the first consideration where they build their defense off of. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you agree with that, or, or, or is it something different for you, or, or how would you approach that? Um, I think I think you can do it that way. Actually, we, when I came back, we did it this way because we had a I think we had a clear cut roster, um, and we had a clear idea of what our bigs were capable of doing and our guards as well. But I do think if you start with the ball screen defense again, I think it's important to to take a look at your regular man to man defensive principles and um, see if foot angles, if, if philosophy are coherent. I'll give you an example. Uh, in that season, we, we channeled, we iced every ball screen. Um, but if you, for example, force the ball to the middle, if you're, if you're not a forced baseline team, and then you ask your, your guys to, to ice the ball screen, that's tough because the, the foot angles are not in the right, um, in the right position. Right. Do it more efficiently so that that's those are things i mean you can you can tackle the issue from both sides i think but uh the important thing is that you don't neglect the other side right and that that was the big takeaway for me again like if you if you if you think of actions like i don't know a diamond entry floppy entry some um some guy flies off of a turnout off ball screen and i'll tell my guys okay you trail that screen but then on the ensuing pick and roll they need to ice that's tough to flip the foot angles quickly and, and all right. of your philosophy has to, that's what I mean by being coherent. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense. You know, when you talk about, you know, even just from looking at it from a perspective of ball of foot angles alone, you know, right. being consistent and, um, 
you know, that gets into another point, which is something that I struggle with. I know I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only, only coach, um, especially working at the youth level, uh, mm-hmm. communication. You know, it, it doesn't really matter what your game plan is if it's not communicated on the court. Uh, right. You've worked with, with high-level youth players. You know, how, how do you encourage that um, translation from practice to the floor, you know, through communication? I think also also clarity again um, is, is, is a thing. I think where my approach with that youth team I had in the first year back, so I coached, I coached three teams that year, actually. I was assistant coach for the first team, head coach for a farm team, and for under-19 team. Busy. And it was crazy. And my luck was that a lot of, like, the majority of the guys on that under-19 team either played in the first league or on the farm team. Mm. So I could, I could go into, into practices and the whole scene playing with, like, a professional approach. You know, like, hey, boom, video here. Here's how we, you know, like, uh, building a defensive culture in a way uh, by means of terminology. I think that's not as easy with an under-16 team much less on the 14 um, or grassroots level basketball. But that's where, what, what we did, like have clear communication items. This is the situation. Um, this is our communication call. For example, um, we, we borrowed or stole a term from Coach Quinn Snyder. Instead of giving help, we called um, our guy, the Gaucho, the help side man, because we said, okay, this is the bull that's the pick and roll player. The roller is the bull that runs down our house. And the Gaucho, the cowboy, um, has, to, has to stop the bull. I like problem that. Is, yeah, problem is, you know, Austrian kids, most of them didn't know what a gaucho was. So <laughs> Which we tried, actually, we tried, you know, I thought of, are there any goalkeepers, you know, like um, uh, soccer goalkeepers that they might know where, like, okay, uh, you call it, I don't know, uh, Buffon, Buffon. But then again, you know, that as stupid as this may sound, also with these, um, with these communication items, you have to be, again, clear. If I, Buffon, screamed it out nobody hears that it's it's tough to pronounce in the heat of the moment i think gaucho is more clearly mm. another thing we we used to tell our on-ball players to yell back 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 if they got in front of the ball on the pick and roll and we told them a late switch on a pick and roll is black and back and black sounds really similar so right. those are the things you know like I, i'm more on the pragmatic side of things it's it's not like i'm i'm, I'm I want to make things overly complicated um, because I'm not creative enough for these things. And don't get me wrong, you know, I, I love to think some of the coaches show now in, in these clinics. There are some ideas where I'm like, whoa, I would have never thought of that. But that's just not me, you know. Mm. Um, but these things, I think you have to account for a little bit. You have to, you have to uh, pay attention to. Right. There's a certain amount of practicality that you, you, right. have, and you, just, you have to be aware of, you know. Back right. and black do sound the same. Uh, yeah. So, sorry to, to interrupt. And that's it. Took it took me a player um, um, uh, getting my attention to that issue. So that's another thing. Like listening to players also on defense. Like, hey, I, I cannot touch this ball screen or, or this communication item is not clear for me. Like yeah. at the end of the day, I think especially with the higher levels, youth level is debatable, but with the high levels, uh, you're a tailor in a way. You, you get the material and you have to tailor a suit that fits your team now. As you right. do offensively, I think the same, same thing is true for offensively as well. Uh, defensively, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of practice, what are some things that you've, you've seen done or you've done to, uh, to get guys talking? You know, I, I'm a high school coach here in the States after a, a time of, you know, the college level. You know, even, even working with some of the higher level, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, mm-hmm. the guys won't, won't talk. 
Um, to be perfectly honest with you, I haven't found a better way than constantly stressing it. You know, it's like, hey, we gotta talk, we gotta talk. And again, like, you have to be, I think you have to be specific in what you ask them to, to, to scream out, shout out, you know, like, right. I, again, I caught myself in, in, the, in the past, I caught myself often uh, scrutinizing my guys for not talking, but, you know, their question was, okay, talking, but what do I say? You know, mm. and I think again, clarity is something that that might help in this regard, in my opinion. Yeah, you have to give them the language. You know, yeah. it's it's uh, yeah. That's I, I, I really, I really, I, I can tell you, like when when I started coaching, when I was like in my early twenties and coaching in under sixteen, and I I ran into the same issue. I always told my guys, yeah, I don't I don't care what you say on the court, talk about the weather as long as you get talking, and that's about the stupidest thing you can do because again, what purpose does it serve me, right? Mm. Um, but those are things again where this where this gap here and like really really thinking and reflecting on my defensive philosophy or, or basically understanding that I didn't, didn't have one uh, up to that point uh, helped me a lot yeah that makes a lot of sense you know it, it's uh, that's, a, that's a foundational part of it um, obviously communication but uh, another thing in, in terms of working with youth that mm-hmm. uh, sometimes that, that I've, I've faced is um, this idea of controlled aggression. You know, you, you have mm-hmm. some guys that are, you know, take unnecessary risks and other guys who just refuse to take any or, or, or pass it. Right. You mm-hmm. know, when you're working with youth guys, how do you, you know, how do you teach them decision-making defensively? So, yeah, that, that, that's an important thing. I think uh, defensive decision-making is something that we often overlook, and I'm, I'm really happy that you brought that up. Um, for me, it's like, okay, you, I think you have more clarity or more structure, def- let's talk, more structure defensively and offensively, ideally, I think. Right. It's, it's not like offensive end of the floor is a, is a like free-for-all, hmm. at least not at the pro level. But I think defensive decision-making is something that gets overlooked because all too often we conceptualize defensive decision, uh, defensive as defensive uh, skills as a hey, just hustle or just athleticism. I think the mind and the quick decision making is important as well. How do I teach that? Um, I saw it because it's, you mentioned con- controlled aggression. I saw it. I saw both approaches where people say, "Hey, we want to contain first and then ramp up the aggression," and I also saw aggressive first and then tone down. So I think whatever fits right. your coach. Well, right and in terms of decision making i always tell my guys uh in, in basic one-on-one it's like look a, a sentence that has helped me is like be as aggressive as you can um but contain as much as you have to so um we don't want to get beat but we also don't want the offense to have a, an easy time swinging the basketball so i think that's a, a sentence or a phrase that helped my guys yeah. and in terms of decision making, you know, video, 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 review, reflecting, also talking about guys, understand, uh, talking to guys uh, about their decision making, um, understanding, I don't know, why did you try to pick off that pass? What did you see? Um, why didn't you stunt towards that guy? Really like understanding where your players come from um, to A, understand what they can understand and B, um, Again, to also reflect for you as a coach, am I asking for something that's impossible? Or I had a point, for example, um, last year in the, in the under-19, he was not a good athlete, but a really smart kid, amazingly smart. And a couple of times it seemed like, look, why don't you make that extra step um, to, I don't know, 
play a passing angle differently. It's like you're lazy or you're slow. And then I talked to him and oftentimes, you know, a couple of times it was like, yeah, he is lazy and he tries to weasel his way out of here. But oftentimes like, look, coach, um, from my perspective, the way I can do the things, this and this makes more sense. And, and oftentimes it actually did. So yeah. I think, um, you know, we, we always ask our players to, to be accountable. Um, but I don't really like, I mean, I like the, the, the term, but I think they shouldn't not only be accountable, they should also have ownership in what you do. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, uh, and, and a lot of times players know, you know, what they're capable of. And, and even if it's something, you know, like, like playing a passing angle, you know, the ultimate goal is to, you know, contain. You know, pick your spots and, and uh, right. you know, play within whatever defensive philosophy you have. Right, that, yeah. that sense of ownership gets them doing all of those things, you know, communicating, holding teammates accountable. That's yeah, and, and, and at the end of the day, to come back to, to the pragmatic side of things, is at the end of the day, it's them who have to do what we ask them to do, you know. Right. Um, again, of course, you've got to have to have some absolutes. Uh, I cannot tell a guy, uh, yeah, um, we have such a good, great shot blocker in the back. I just let my guy drive by every time. Um, you know, that's, that will go right. against the absolutes. But, and also think that uh, as, I, as I got older and more experienced that I started to accept and started to understand that at the end of the day, again, it's them that have to do what says what I write in the scouting report. Yeah. They have to be capable of doing it, willing to do it. I always say, look, on scouting, in terms of scouting and on paper, I've never lost a game. Every scouting report leads to a perfect result. But as we all know, the reality looks a little bit different. Right, right. Yeah, yeah no, it's uh, – they have to have confidence in what they're doing on the court. You know, ultimately. And that's – and let me make that clear. That's not a knock on the players. Um, right. You know, like also we had a really experienced point guard that year and then he, he would point out if, if, if he saw something in the scouting report where they, hey, I don't agree and we talked about it and – and when I, I was convinced, we changed stuff. So, again, it's not, uh, I'm so great. I've never lost a game of scouting report and the players are bad. Now what I'm saying is, like, I, I can dream up some crazy scenario where we beat every team, but at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about the players. Yeah. And that's the important part. Yeah. And, you know, how, how many, there's so many coverages. There's so many things you can mm-hmm. do, you know. Um, uh, Ultimately, you know, there, there are only so many things you can be great at, only so many, you know, options you can be great at. Um, compare, I guess, working with youth to working with the pros in terms of how many options do you give them? How many coverages do you have? Say, take, take a, a sideline ball screen, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a million ways to cover it. How, how many do you show? I think, I think for, for youth level, um, we worked with, with one primary coverage that we used uh, most of the time. Um, but I think if, if we flip it and go to the offensive development, if you just run pick and roll against ice every time, uh, the young players need to learn how to cover, attack edge coverages, switch coverages. I think so. you, you have a primary coverage at youth level, but you show them everything, basically. Mm. Um, but more so for your offensive level. Um, for the pros, what we did, we had a primary coverage that was our, our channeling or ice coverage that year. So we tried to, to force away or force away from the middle, not necessarily away from the ball screen, but away from the middle. And, but if there were situations where A, we couldn't uh, get into the coverage, or B, we didn't want to get into, cover, into the coverage because one player picked it apart, um, or we had to um, 
employ our imaginary, uh, imaginary emergency coverage, um, we had a secondary coverage. So we said, okay, we want to ice as much as possible, uh, but if we need to, we trap. And, and what I like about this distinction or this, this package of two coverages, you have one coverage that is by design more passive, more containment, but if necessary, you can ramp up the aggressive, uh, aggressiveness with that secondary coverage. So that's how we did. Yeah, um, that's simple. I, I like your, your, you have an opportunity to be really good at those coverages as opposed to, you know, uh, being okay at five different ones. And, 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 and that's, a, again, that's a, coming, coming back to, to, to um, working with the players. I think, I think we all as humans are creatures of habit. Um, I don't know if, if you throw me, let's say, from, as an example, if I have to do video scouting and the first scout I have to do with sports code and the next I have to do with Windows Movie Maker and the next I have to do with, I don't know, uh, I, iMovie Pro or, or Final Cut Pro, whatever it is called, that's going to be a tough transition. I think it's the same thing if we ask players to hedge on that ball screen, even though we never do it in practice, and then drop, which we maybe do, and then trap, which we only do one-third of the time. I think that's, that's not fair to our players. If we then um, have the same high standards, uh, or we, we set the same high standards for them as we would set for them for the base coverage. Yeah. Uh, obviously, as the levels progress, I think if we're talking EuroLeague and NBA, uh, of course you can implement more coverages. But I'm, I'm a firm believer that at least you have to see a coverage um, in practice or in preseason before you can run it. it makes right. no sense to tell our guys, okay, we, we had this problem against one team. It makes no sense to tell our guys, now we go under against the player. Um, even though it seems simple, we've never done it. And... As a consequence, he picked the player picked us apart. And again, that's not on the players. That's on me as an assistant coach for the scouting then. Um, if I if I throw them something that they haven't done yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's easy to forget sometimes when you're you're you have these ambitions of what you want to do that these guys are human, you know, and that's uh, the thing. Yeah. And um, again, if if you, you are what you preach and you are what you practice in a way. And again, look, I'm, I'm not saying that if there's not a, a, a talent level where, I don't know, you, you show him hedge ball screen defense, um, I don't know, a 10-year pro in preseason. And I don't know, in December or January, he'll be still able to do it, of course. But right. um, I think especially when we're talking about the HU coach and, and again, our, our club is a, a youth program that gives uh, players an outlet. Um, to, to be pros and, and to, to play with the first team once they finished school. For them, I cannot ask a big guy to do 10 different coverages without talking about them if he's 19, 20. Right. Talking about the national team level, that's a different thing. But they are like in, in Austria, we were working with, you know, basically a Euroleague level center in, in Russia, Malabasic, uh, EuroCup players like Tommy Kleppweiss, Thomas Schreiner. There's so many good and experienced players. For them, it's easier. Right. To pick it quickly because, for one, they played long enough. Two, um, they see different coverages at their base clubs. So it's, it's also a, a thing of perspective. And again, it's, it's tailored to your players. You see the difference. You know, uh, basically, EuroLeague level center versus a 19-year-old kid at my club. You have to approach these things differently with them. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's all about uh, – it's not about what you've done this year. It's, it's – you know, they've seen it over the past 10 years. It's the aggregate. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And some players, some players, uh, like us coaches, some players are quicker to pick up certain things than others. 
um, and, and, and have an easier time. And that's, you know, that's a, a good thing because it would be boring if everybody was the same. And, and again, I, from formulating this defensive philosophy took me a year. So it's, for me, I'm, I'm also on the, the slow learner side in these things. So I understand if a player has a hard time, um, I, I, I can feel that because for me, it, was, it took me a long time to, to really have a foundation here. How would you say that, it, that your personal philosophy, and, and I know you mentioned you know, ways that you communicated vocabulary and, and even how to talk has changed. Um, how, how has your philosophy changed over the years? Um, I think if, if, if I had the opportunity um, to pick my team, like, I don't know, like a NBA 2K, my team mode, basically, you know, um, I think the philosophy would be, be very similar to that base philosophy I, I crafted in that year and, and, and we implemented the year following because I think it's all very important that you you teach something that you're comfortable with, you know, like um, that's, the, that's the philosophy I'm most comfortable with. And I would, if, if possible, I'd play, uh, pick players that fit that philosophy. Yeah. Um, with that being said, how has my philosophy evolved? Last year, we had a complete overhaul at our club and played a small ball lineup. And basically we did almost everything um, differently and actually the exact opposite of what we did the year before. So I think especially at the pro level, if you, if you have a program that, isn't on the on the uh, or in the top three in terms of budget in your league. I think you have to be creative and, and adaptable with philosophy. So we went from more containing defense because we lost our, our rim protecting five guy to an all out um, aggressive switching small ball and nexting um, uh, team. And again, that meant that we had to change our foot angles. So we couldn't uh, force baseline as much because we wanted to force people into the screens. So we had to, to teach our guys to flip their foot angle. And that's, again, a thing that you have to account for because now we told our – and our bigs did an amazing job last year and also our guards in terms of picking it up. But we – you know, we for nine months, we drilled it into him. Four space and four space and lock the hip, ice, 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 channel, channel, channel. And within, you know, four weeks, boom, and now flip to the exact opposite. And it takes some time, but I think our guys – did a great job last year at that. Yeah. And what, what I'm really hearing is, you know, it's kind of a, uh, a similar, you know, thing that I think a lot of coaches face is it's, it's, it's easy to have this, this great thing on paper, but ultimately it's about the players. It's about adapting your, your philosophy to those guys. And even at the pro level. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's the thing, like, again, I, I, I already said this quote, but also with the philosophy, if I, if I show you my, my defensive philosophy on paper, basically, we should give up zero points per game. Um, right. But that's right. not the game of basketball. Um, and again, that's, that's my, you know, like my, how should I say, like, my con I'm convinced of that, you know, and that you have to sell it to your players. But again, it's, hey, perfection, I like the saying by Coach Tuemosisolo from, from Kreilsheim, perfection is a fragile thing. And if we ask our players to, to really perform at a high speed and, and make decisions at a high speed, a perfection will not be attainable. It's the same thing if you're a waiter or a waitress um, and you run towards the table you're serving with, uh, I don't know, 10 glasses of wine or, or, I don't know, pints of beer. If you sprint at them full speeds, more than likely will spill some beer, you know? Right, um, right. But, you know, they get their beer faster, you know? <laughs> so yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I think that that's, I mean, that's tremendous. That's, that's, uh, the coach has to be a salesman and uh, this is no different. Yep. In, in terms of, you know, let, let, looking at a broad perspective, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned, you know, next coverage. What are, what are some, some trends that you're seeing? Um, what are some trends you're seeing defensively? For example, I, I, think, I think that if, if the shot clock uh, gets set down to 24 eventually or is introduced in high school uh, eventually uh, nationwide, I think, for example, next defense is something that uh, has been becoming more popular in, in Europe. Uh, that could be a great thing to pick up for, for American coaches. Because Would you describe that? Because I'm sure a lot of you know, people listen to this. Um, uh, yeah, like sure. I will in a second. I'll just answer your, your previous question. Um, what, what I've seen in Europe is, you know, uh, in the last couple of years, we've talked a lot about the analytics-friendly approach of, you know, dropping the pick and roll, playing it two-on-two, forcing the mid-range jumper. And I get the sense that in Europe, um, there, the hard hedge is, is uh, having a comeback now. Hmm. seen a lot of hedging, um, a lot of switching as well. I think the NBA was a, a precursor here, um, especially the schemes that the Warriors, how the Warriors switched or also, also Houston. Um, so I think that's, that's something that's pro- prominent in Europe. Um, we don't see ice ball screen defense as much anymore. Um, um, but yeah, I think hard hedge is on the rise. And that's something you probably don't see as much in the States, I suppose. But it's, at least yeah. in the NBA, I haven't got that good of a grasp of, of, of college and, and high school basketball. Yeah, no, I would certainly agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, college still, it, it seems, you know, ices a, a lot. You know, they don't drop coverage as much. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think hard hedge is it's there, but I think the emphasis is really switching and icing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's – and I'll post a link – to your um, uh, to your art, the, what you wrote on on Medium about the next coverage in the, mm-hmm. the bio for this podcast, it, it's really mm-hmm. a you know something I was unfamiliar with. It, it you know I, I've watched some film on uh, the, the idea of the the, uh, the beer switch, mm-hmm. um, you know, but but I hadn't seen it used in in ball screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't mind, kind of yeah, uh, sure. yeah, describe that so, for us. So, so what the idea is, um, and I think it, it originated from um, just the stunting and playing the driving lanes more aggressively um, in terms of when a pick and roll goes two to two or three man side. So what the idea is to keep the big out of the pick and roll rotation, you jump switch with the top player. So imagine a side pick and roll on the left side of the floor, empty side pick and roll, and there's three people uh, on the right side of the floor. And as that pick and roll happens, the big drops back. And instead of containing the ball, he's um, responsible only for, for his role man. And mm-hmm. the guy who picks up the ball is not a top guy on the right side. So what basically happens if you think of uh, North Carolina's run and jump press, it basically is a run and jump press in the pick and roll. Okay. Yeah. So the on-ball defender who fights over the screen, once he sees that next guy, and that's where the name originates, the next guy switching onto the ball, he runs and jump switches to the next guy that's open. And here we use the term run to where your health came from. Run to where, so you're, you're continuing your momentum. You're not going backside. Yeah. Right. Continue the momentum. I mean, in that case, there is nobody backside. But uh, if, sure. even if there was, we, even if there was, we'd continue our momentum. And depending on how the successive rotations um, play out, if another guy you know, covers for the next guy, you just continue running through to the, to the next guy. Basically, 
you peel you peel off like a, a banana peel peel switch it's a, it's a terminology i i stole from bill white mm. uh, that's something that's something you do basically yeah yeah the peel switch um no that's great um is that something that you guys have have, have done a lot personally and um program? The, the 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 peel switching we've done for eight years i think now we had a, a really great young coach who unfortunately um chose a different career path but he introduced this uh, to us off of a european clinic um and that that was something that really worked especially for young guys because we had a lot of activity and and, and you know people were flying left and right around the court and we used the next defense last year um it was tough for us in two regards because it was a concept we've never done so it was a, a really big um, adaption period or, or, or elongated adaption period for our players. And the second thing is, um, while we had the, the foot speed and, and the intelligence, we didn't have the size to really influence uh, passes as much. So against certain teams, it was tough for us to next. Yeah. yeah. But then again, if, if we, if we like when, when we were at 100%, if we were like maximum engagement defensively and and maximum hustle we managed to to really disrupt even experienced ball handlers in our league yeah you know yeah. then again this is the coverage that works if you have a kid that runs into the next um next uh, switch that's as i said greek freak two meters 11 with a wingspan like i don't know uh, seven more than seven feet it's a nightmare to play uh, play against these kinds of switches oh i'm sure yeah i'm sure it, i'm sure ball handlers get passive and and uh, don't know how to how to attack it. Yeah, because also, and that's why I think it, it's great against uh, college isolation scores or high school isolation scores. What you do is you again you jump switch aggressively and and to beat this coverage unless it's run poorly, obviously. But that's the, the way with a lot right. of coverages. Yeah. Right. Um, you have to beat it with the pass. And if you really come at the ball handler at a good angle where you cut off the drive, but also cover the passing lane. It's it's a nightmare to play against. When you're implementing this, what what is the cue for the for the jump? You know, is it you know at the point of the ball screen? Is it two steps past it? Um, that, that that's a good question. I think I think um, it's important, and that's the key to all ball screen defenses. And again, I, I keep repeating it, but that's a thing that that I didn't understand until I really immersed myself into the topic. Like at the end of the day. It's not important. Uh, it's not as important how to rotate on the backside and how to help. I mean, it is, but hey, the first priority is your on-ball defender. If I manage to to be a, a one-man wrecking crew on that uh, pick and roll ball handler and um, manage to knife over every every pick without being clipped, without um, without the offense gaining an advantage, everything is easier. So that's the first right. step. Um, you know, if, if, if my player gets clipped on that ball screen and, and uh, the offensive player can go shoulder to shoulder and turn the corner immediately, I don't think that you're going to get there anyways. And if you're super early, then the pass is easier. So I'd argue as the, as the, um, as the guy com comes off the screen, comes off the screen, you start your momentum towards him. But one thing to consider, we already shift really aggressively early. Mm. You see so it it's not like we were in a deny and then run out. We are already shifted. Yeah. So that yeah. that way is not as long as, as as you would think. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, and really, just again, I guess having engaged defensive, you know, def defensive players off the ball, 
and everybody mm -hmm. on a string, you know, it, it, you're able to yeah. that chord a lot. But also that, 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 that's another, another thing, you know, for me, like to, to, um, in scouting and to evaluate my own defense, like if, if, if for me it, in the past, it was tough, like, okay, I saw, and I was so preoccupied with rotations, how to X out, blah, 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 all of this stuff. Um, and again, coming back to being more, more pragmatic, it's like, look, I don't understand. We, we rotated perfectly, boom, boom. Why are we still giving up an open shot? And then now, a couple of years later, it's like, yeah, we get an open shot or the opposing team gets an open shot because our point guard doesn't fight over the screen. Yeah. He hogs the screen, gives up on the play. Everybody else rotates perfectly, but at the, at the end of the day, the mistake didn't happen in the rotation, in the coverage rotation. It happened on the ball. And I think that's something I cannot stress enough because I made that mistake for, mistake for four years, basically. Hey, at the end of the day, don't forget what happens on the basketball. Right. In everything you do. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think young players especially, and coaches too, forget that the, the ball scores. No. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. We, I can, I can, I can again design the most, uh, I don't know, the most sophisticated rotation and whatnot. But again, if we don't manage to contain the ball, or if I don't stress to my players, and that's also a thing, you you are what you preach in a way. If I if I only talk about rotations, 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 eventually, the sense of Guarding the ball, not mattering as much as the rotation might, uh, uh, I don't know, might, might, might yeah. be created, you know? Um, so, again, you, you are what you preach in these kind of things, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's always easier to, to guard the ball, you know, getting in rotation no matter what puts stress on your defense, you know? So, right, right. Um, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I won't keep you too much longer, Coach, but... Uh, uh, okay. Go on, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm enjoying my time here. Well, I'm always curious to ask, um, you know, what, what do you track in terms of in-game or in-practice defensive statistically? What, what are some, some things you track? Um, I, I, I saw this as, or I realized this actually the other day when I talked to a friend of mine, when we talked about analytics. I, I probably make myself unpopular now, but I'm not a big, big analytics guy, to be honest with you. Um, neither in, in, in percentage. First of all, I'm bad at math, so that's, <laughs> that doesn't help. Um, for me, and I'm not saying analytics don't have, uh, have their rightful place. They for sure have, and I think the game of basketball um, has become more streamlined and more efficient because of analytics. Um, for me, it's however, it's like defensively a couple of of um, the eye test in a way, you know, um, believing in what I see on the floor. I'll give you an example. If if my if analytics say in terms of shot charts that I don't know a guy misses um, misses at the rim five times in a row, but my point guard gets beat five times in a row on the ball screen, we don't get scored, but it still is an open shot, you know. So it's, it's, for me, it's defensively. Conversely, um, if I switch with my foreman and my foreman defends the point guard on an isolation and he does everything perfectly, um, but the isolating point guard, I don't know, hits a tough step-back jumper because he's, I don't know, Stephen Curry or James Harden over him. Right. You know, yeah. what are we asking our players to do? And then when I see that, like, okay, if he still scores, okay, maybe we need to trap. For me, I'm not, not a big statistics guy, but maybe that's also because of my role because, I, you know, I have the scouts on the team. So mm -hmm. I need to call out the plays, need to see who's on. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Probably, 
like on the spot, on the fly, probably how often the uh, offensive team gets paint touches. I think that's a statistic you can think about. Um, and again, how often the offense manages to break your principles. What I mean by that is like, if you're a no middle team, how often does the offense get to the middle? Mm -hmm. I think that's something that's easy also for, for youth teams to, an easy way to hold players accountable or to show them. Maybe they think, hey, we, we're doing a good job defensively because, I don't know, they're not hitting their shots. But in reality, um, the opposing team broke the paint, I don't know, uh, 20 times in the first half, you know? Right, right. Maybe that's a number you can implement. Hey, we want to have only, I think I had this in my defensive philosophy, but I, I took it out because it was not feasible for me to keep track as a head coach of a youth team, you know? Mm. But we said, okay, maximum five paint touches per quarter. Mm. That's what we said. But... Yeah. To be perfectly honest with you, never ever took track of it. That's a that's a hard thing to track. You know, I've I've been a, an assistant who's tasked with that, and you know, it's tough to keep track of that. But I I think yeah. I think you're right in a lot of ways that result does not tell the whole story. You know, and that's hard for young guys to get. Conversely, then if if we talk about the offensive offensive uh, side of the ball, and I think that's where communication and being on the same um, philosophical track as your head coach. And that's why I said I, I love working with, with Coach Rolf Corner because he has a completely different perspective than my head coach at the club level. So it's great to, you know, have to, having to adapt and like um, seeing the game through his eyes. Mm. Um, but I, I remember in the past, like I was, I was, I was tasked once many years back, like when I was, I was a young coach, um, to, to track the plays we run and track... Um, how successful we were hmm. but and again how do you define success if i don't know off of a pick and roll play we hit a contested two-point shot a mid-range shot is that a good offense and we get a good shot or is having a wide open uh three-pointer which we constantly miss is that a bad shot you know like right there has to be, and for me i really struggled with that and that's because I, I also didn't seek out my head coach like look what do you want from this chart actually but again it comes back to clarity and, and i think in all in all facets of your program, be it defensively, offensively, scouting, disciplinary stuff, values, culture, whatever is it, I think clarity is, is one of the most important parts to, to install. Also for, for new and young head coaches, if you go into a program, I think it's not as important to, to, to sell an amazing vision. I think a clear vision is more important. You know? hmm. That, that, I, I like the way you put that clarity and simplicity, you know, it, it wins, you know, more often than not. Because for, I, again, I saw this with my, my scouts back in the day. I was like, uh, he's a gifted scorer. Yes. And what does that help my, my player? Does he go right? Does he go left? Is he a pull-up jump shooter? Is he a three-point shooter? Does he finish at the rim? Is he mid-range? You know, like, I am a gifted scorer. Yes, I see that. But what do you want me to do? And that's a point of clarity as well. And same thing, if, if you talk about culture codes for your program, I think we want to be a hardworking program. Yes, but what does hardworking mean? Defining these terms. Defining, right. Clarity. Hard work, hey, be on time. Be respectful. Whatever it is that you define as hardworking. But I always struggle with, with, with hearing, like, okay, we're going to be the hardest working program in all of Austria. Yeah. What does that mean? Right. How do you measure? How do you measure that? Sense? Because it can also it can also mean you know 
it can also mean okay I'm, I'm I don't know my guys uh, on an off day go into the gym and and shoot for two hours because they that's what they see as hard work and on the next day in practice they're completely flat um, and they cannot practice properly and I had this problem with the youth team and again it's not the fault of the players because I sold them oh and it was like I don't know five or six years back I sold them yeah we're gonna be the hardest working the toughest team in the league blah 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 you know through these buzzwords but and again those are good um how should say like good words to live by don't get me wrong but again i believe i firmly believe players need to understand what that means mm. yeah especially young players you know especially uh, young players especially young players yeah especially right. young players what are, what are are things you know that you uh, like you mentioned you know hard working defining hard working what are what are would you say are the cornerstones of your culture my culture, uh, be respectful, be on time. That's, that's my biggest pet peeve, being on time. It's something where I really, really, really get angry if people are not on time. Um, as a respectful, uh, I think in a way, less is more. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big believer of, I don't know, running a two-hour practice and the player going through the motions and then being in the gym for one more hour and getting up extra, extra shots, you know? I'm, I'm like, hey, the time that we have as a, as a group or an individual practice, use those 90 minutes, 120 minutes, however long you practice, go all out there. And if you still have the need to, to shoot after practice, then do it. But what, what really frustrates me is when, when players uh, feel the need to do extra work when the, I should say, like the, the work in practice itself could have been better. So I always tell my players, hey, Use those 120 minutes, and if after that or before that you need something else, some more 15 minutes, hey, I'll be there for you. But I want you to use those um, practice slots that we have. That's, I think, an important thing for young, for young uh, players because, um, and then I'll probably get blasted by, by a couple of Instagram uh, <laughs> users now, but, you know, all too often they see, I don't know, Instagram players or like players, you know, shooting five, you know, not, not like pro coaches or pros, but, you know, like posting Oh, I went to the gym for 30 minutes. That's also a thing. Like, I don't believe in posting your workouts on social media. You know, work in silence and let your game do the talking. That's right. a thing I'm really big on because in reality, who cares, you know? If you, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but I'm, you know, like, that, that's also a thing, like, where, where I've grown because I, I was the same a couple of years back, you know? It's, it's, it's something that took me some time to realize. It's, hey, if, you know, 500 shots, whether you post them on Instagram or not, or on, on Twitter or whatever, um, it's, it's, the same, it's the same amount of shots you get up. You know? <laughs> yeah, you don't get bonus for posting it on Instagram. Right, 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 right. So, but that's, you know, that, that, that's a pet peeve, you know, like, even though I'm 30, maybe, you know, like, uh, <laughs> that shows my old age already, I don't know. Um, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not killing a kid overdoing it, so don't get me wrong, it's not like, ah, oh, you only post on social media, just... I think the, the, main, the main takeaway message, and, and let me be perfectly clear uh, when I say or when I talk about social media, don't lose sight of your focus. Don't lose sight of what really matters in what you want to achieve. If, I don't know, if you get 1,000 likes on shooting 503s, great. But those 503s, the main goal should be, hey, get your repetitions, right. work on your game. Hey, as long as you, I don't take a professional photo shooting, I don't care, but don't lose track of what's important. I think that's what I was trying to say with the practice, uh, uh, with the practice example, like be focused, but don't like, I don't know. Um, I hope you don't have to censor this, but my, my former head coach said, don't dick around in practice, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then 
act all 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 um yeah pro after the practice is over yeah gotta be pro always 24 hours a day yeah yeah there has to be a why you know the, the, uh, and and that's that's your focal point uh, yeah. i like that a lot um what kind of kind of winding down what um what have you done uh, this quarantine has been it's been mm. uh, nuts for everybody i'm sure but what what are what are some things that you've done to to improve or you know books you've read or or you know film you've watched or what are some things that you you've done to get better for me for me the quarantine hit a bit differently for me because i i was still uh, as of, of as of last season i was still in the midst of finishing my university degree mm. so that coincided with the first month of quarantine so that first month I was occupied with, with having my final exam. And following that, um, I really dove into those clinics. I held a couple of, of them myself. Um, Liam Flynn's clinics, Ryan Pannon's clinics, Alex Sarama's clinics, um, Francesco Nani's clinics, Daniel Sokolowski, KJ Smith. There's KJ Smith. There's so many people I could mention. And I'm, I'm sorry for everybody who I forgot to mention. Um, so I dove, I dove for the first two to three weeks. I was all in on those clinics and also started writing my own blog um but to be perfectly honest with you john um as i as i as the time went on and you probably see this on the activity on my on my blog a bit of attrition set in i think you know like yeah. I, I was oversaturated in, in, in terms of basketball and i think i mean I, I do watch some stuff watch some clips watch some games every second day but I the one thing that this quarantine talk taught me is like too much of a good thing can be a bad thing as well. And, and, and too little of a good thing, obviously, as well. So what I'm trying to say is, like, I, 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 met, I saw how during season I was all in on basketball and did nothing else. Um, and, 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 you know, like, didn't have something to counteract, to balance it. And then when uh, the season was over, the, the, to the quarantine, quarantine, then I had only university and did nothing else. And, you know, I jumped from being all in from one point to another and I think for me is I, I want to watch more clinics in season right now but I don't want to watch 500 clinics in the next couple of days because like for me it's just you know I think I learned for myself that you have to have some balance and not uh, kill yourself um, with one topic you know like again you, you have to grow as a coach um, and, and you have to get better and strive to get better but to be able to to get better, you have to enjoy doing your job. And I think balance is really important. And, and, and coming to a second point, what I read up on a lot is um, books about mental health. Because I'm, first of all, that's something I wrote about in my, in my diploma thesis about the mental health of athletes. And I'm really interested in that topic. And also I'm really interested how, how our athletes come back from this uh, imposed hiatus. And I think I can only, first of all, and I don't want to be, you know, like, like the, the white knight for mental health now, but, but still knowing how some, uh, some branches of sport view mental health, I think it is important to, to, to break barriers and to uh, fight for, for more acknowledgement. First of all, I think mental health issues are on the rise. Not only I know that they are, statistics say, and I think coming back from these uh, months of, of not being able to pursue the athletic career, to be among teammates, be among friends. I think it'll be interesting and then um, yeah, a tough, tough transition back. And I think we as coaches, and also for us coaches, I think there are a lot of coaches 
I think it's, it's easier for athletes actually to speak out than for coaches still. Yeah. Um, but I think also as coaches, I think we have to first of all look ourselves in the mirror and find, as I said, a good balance so that we don't get burned out even before anything starts again. Because you know, like I, I see your bookshelf here on the, on the video in the back, and for me it was you know like you know like but for me it's like I have I, I basically bought twenty books uh, since lockdown, you know, and I breezed through the first five, and then I was like, right, right, you know. Yeah, and, and that's that's a great point in balance, and it's and it's okay to to not do anything, right. you know. Right. Okay. I mean, again, it, 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 it shouldn't it shouldn't you know it shouldn't amount to to then I don't know uh, being on the couch for five days. That's what I'm I'm not saying, you know. Like, right. I mean, obviously, if you need it, you need it, you know. But um, for me, and again, I not not to pat myself on the shoulder too much, but I say I'm 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 a, I'm a worker, you know, like that's what I take pride in. I'm that's I say I'm a hardworking coach. I take pride in being meticulous in my preparation and so on. But for me, this this narrative of of uh, you gotta be twenty four seven basketball, 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 and and eat, sleep, uh, talk basketball, breathe basketball, uh, scouting report uh, cutting until seven in the morning and at ten a.m. You're in practice, high energy. I mean, it's a great goal, but it's not not feasible. It's not realistic, you know. All all I'm saying, like, is like again, um, work diligently, work work meticulously. I think you have to do this as an assistant coach. And again, uh, I'd say if, if I had to describe my best characteristic as an assistant coach, that'd be it. But on that same uh, note, I think it's really really important to 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 take care of one's mental health. Yeah, oh, and I think that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with that narrative. Yeah. At least not for all, all 100% of coaches and players out there. I, I think it's, you know, you, you see uh, mental health issues, uh, you know, come into light with, you know, Kevin Love and, and what he's done. Uh, but the, there's certainly a, a stigma that is, you know, in sports in general, broadly, you know, but it is a testosterone competitive, you know, you're afraid right. to show weakness and um, you know. and, and, and I think that's that's for in, in my research. That's that's like let, let me let me uh, take on the role as the interviewer now for for one question. Who, who's the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time, in your opinion? Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, and he suffers from or suffered from severe depressions to the point where he uh, contemplated suicide. So I think the stigma of 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 mental health issues and 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 athletes being exempt from it because they're you know, mentally toughness right. is mental toughness is not mental health. You know, and uh, that's a, that's a great example that you can still thrive and still be a great coach, a great a great player, great swimmer, whatever, Olympic athlete, even though if you suffer from uh, or despite suffering from mental health issues. And to be honest with you, um, you know, I, I'd like to have even more courage, courage and like speak to a broader audience about it than than in my thesis alone because like working on that thesis showed me how much of a burning issue and then and contemporary topic that is first up pod yeah. if you like what you hear be sure to click subscribe and leave us a review on itunes